Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Today we're bringing you part two of the MS Stakeholder Summit series. During part one, which first ran two weeks ago, a panel of experts discussed tailoring treatments to patients with multiple sclerosis, payer considerations, and more. In this second part of the series, the same panel of experts continues their talk on MS. They will discuss newer therapies, switching therapies, and more. Really, the major concern is undertreatment. So, you know, whether it's, um, you know, just in general about undertreatment or maybe, you know, the data around some of the newer therapies, like, say, the Escalepius trials or something like that, to try to help give us some, 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 you know, factual grounding in terms of what we're missing or what we could gain by being uh, uh, tighter in our therapies. You know, and now, now we have a fantastic treatment, key symptom. And, and, you know, from a peer perspective, I, I look at this in, a, in maybe a different way in that, you know, we have Ocrevus that our patients uh, use and we've been uh, advocates for its use since approval, but it's very costly. And it's not, the average wholesale price for the drug is pretty reasonable. The services packaged together can be uh, quite extreme. And we've seen bills submitted uh, that are in excess of $300,000 a year. And so during a time of COVID, you know, that, that was a big issue where infusion suites closed down uh, in the state of Texas. People could, couldn't even get their infusion if they wanted to in a private facility because it was closed because of COVID. You know, how nice to have then this anti-CD20 that you can administer to yourself when you get up to full pace every four weeks at home on your time schedule. And it's not as if you're trying to, you know, reschedule a dinner at a three Michelin star restaurant. And that's what it's like for some of these people when they're trying to get their infusion appointment, um, having to reschedule because of some other factor in life that has come up. So, um, you know, already you can see that from a cost saving standpoint for a pair, hey, Key symptoms is really ideal. And, and the, the, the studies really supported benefit um, when compared to teraflunamide. I mean, obviously you saw lower discontinuation rates uh, when on it in the extension. Of course, it was superior to teraflunamide in both trials by reducing relapse rates by over 50%. Um, it's a therapy that's very robust. They all fall into the same anti-CD20 class. Uh, whether you want to include Pfizer's generic rituximab as well as Teva's Truxima, um, and we were soon to have Ublituximab by TG Therapeutics as well. I mean, the space is getting uh, very crowded. Uh, but but really, what what the key pivotal trials have have uh, told us uh, is that you know a great anti CD20 can be administered at home safely, um, yeah. having you know a, a given robust effect that's also durable. And, and the one thing I'll say here too, is that anti-CD20s as a class may be similar, but there are innate differences. You know, these key symptoms may have less of an effect on germinal centers within the spleen. That could be of great value in the setting of COVID. It could be wonderful if you're trying to mount a more robust response to a COVID vaccine. We somewhat all know we'll need a booster, or at least an annual shot, it seems. Uh, so there are differences there. Recrudescence of B cells seems to be faster with Kesimta than with Ocrevus. And, you know, just the convenience of it all with people being able to administer it at home and it getting into the lymphatic system directly into where it's having a, 
a given positive effect rather than having it be infused intravenously, you know, maybe a key differentiating feature uh, when comparing it to Ocrevus. But if I were to put my pear hat on for a second, I mean, why would you cover Ocrevus when we have key symptoms? Let me pull this back a little bit to make sure that we're all, everybody who's, who's listening is, 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 is somewhat grounded in terms of, of the science and what we know in terms of the outcomes, right? So we have, um, you know, some of the newer therapies, we have the Asclepius trials, but then we have the Opera trials for Ocalizumab. Um, maybe Dr. Lice, I could get you to speak a little bit about those so we could, you know, we've been throwing around a lot of terms about these different therapies. Maybe just a quick overview of what we know about uh, Okra, please. So Ocalizumab had three clinical trials that led to its approval. Uh, one was uh, primary progressive trials that uh, also led to the approval of ocrelizumab as the only medication formally approved for primary progressive MS at this point in time. Primary progressive MS, as Dr. Okuda mentioned in, in, in the uh, opening statements, uh, marked by no relapse, is just progression from the, the very beginning in individuals that have appropriate lesions and in individuals uh, where there are no other conditions that could do this. Then Ocrelizumab has also additional trials uh, that were performed. The uh, trials that led to the approval are the two OPERA trials. They were large trials. The comparator was Rebef at that point in time. And Ocrelizumab beat in these trials Rebef in all outcomes in terms of disability, relapses, and also MRI changes. So from that point of view, if you think of what do we assess in MS? We are assessing, does a patient have a relapse? These are obviously protocol-defined relapses, which is slightly different from what we may consider a relapse in the community. These patients had less disability progression. In fact, uh, not an insignificant number of patients had some improvement of disability. And then also the MRI changes uh, less new lesions and also less atrophy in these patients that could be observed. Um, we mentioned the point that uh, ofatumumab is a medication that is self-administered by patients. Ocrelizumab is a medication that is administered to the patient. And sometimes that may be a relative advantage in certain population when I actually know that a patient had the treatment. I understand that there are site of care issues surrounding ocrelizumab, but I also uh, can note, and I work in an area in Philadelphia, so this quite heavily penetrated by, by managed care, um, that there has been diligent work by both the hospitals or the provider organizations on the payers to ensure that patients have access with the the most appropriate side of care. So uh, where patients are infused in the physician office in the same environment that they may be infused in the, in the, from, in the hospital environment dependent on contractual basis. So there are ways of managing that by the payers so that what Dr. Afkuda referred to is not occurring. So let me ask you a question also. Could you compare or contrast maybe that to cladribine? And there was the clarity trial, I believe? Yeah, so cladribine is a different approach, right? Uh, yep. so, cl cladri so we 
with many of the medications that, or with all of the medications that we discussed with perhaps uh, the exemption of the mentioning of alentuzumab, we are looking at treatments where the patient needs relatively regular administration of a medication. And cladribine brings a different, or uh, maven brain name, brings a different proposition to the table. Here we have the, the concept where a short course treatment uh, can potentially lead to long-term disease control in these patients. So these are, in the case of uh, cladribine, these are short courses of one week uh, and then followed by one week in months two in year one and one week plus, uh, plus followed in with uh, an additional week in months two in year two. So where essentially the patient takes pills for four weeks out of two years with the intent that this medication has a long-term reach in terms of uh, reducing disease activity in these patients. And uh, so this is a, a different approach in, in that respect. And you mentioned the CLARITY trial. This was a yep. controlled trial where there was relatively uh, long-term stability in the patients that had completed two courses of cladribine. Where the, uh, even after four years, so two years beyond the active treatment, there was a significant superiority of the patients that had the treatments that was observed. So that's a different approach uh, where the patient is on medication for a very short period of time and cladribine is essentially out of the system very quickly. So it may uh, afford the patient uh, medication-free periods of time so that's an additional treatment that is available uh, to patients. And now, Dr. Okuda, you had already uh, brought up um, ofatuvimab. Um, if you could just uh, expound on that a little bit to make sure that we you know, have a, a level playing field between some of these uh, agents we're discussing. In those two key pivotal trials, what you did see is an annualized relapse rate that was about half for the first trial and then in excess of that for the second. So it does, it did hit the primary endpoint of reducing the annualized relapse rate. It was also very effective, of course, in suppressing new MRI changes, uh, as well as uh, preventing disability. So ofotumumab was actually superior to teraflunamide in doing that. Um, and then there's some studies that popped up from that, looking at discontinuation rates that really favored uh, ironically ofotumumab over an oral therapy once a day, teraflunamide. Um, and then also studies that deal with NIDA. So of course, if you have primary outcome measures where the event rates are, are half, if not greater, you're gonna see stark differences in the measure of no evidence of disease activity between ofotumumab and teraflunamide, which is what you saw. Now, in fair balance, you know, a lot of, of people in the medical economic circles will look at number needed to treat. You know, is that absolute difference between these two very effective therapies because you have other therapies that are at the precipice of being approved like ublituximab where they couldn't show that it was superior to teraflunamide on the disability outcome measure, which may be related to a variety of issues. But they're, they're, they're definitely, um, OFA is a therapy that's, that's effective. Um, it, it showed to be uh, more effective than teraflunamide in the pivotal trials. Now the interpretation of of those data from an economic perspective may mean something different to others. But 
these are great treatments that allow for a different way for patients to get an anti-CD20. Um, I agree there are innate, innate differences uh, that are somewhat subtle, uh, but meaningful uh, in certain circumstances. But um, you know, it's a very attractive mechanism of action uh, in MS because of its durable effect. And I think the other thing that's important to mention that Dr. Lice was alluding to was this induction form of effect, right? And Lemtrada and Mavenclad fall into this class, less so the anti-CD20s, it's argued, but uh, for, for those patients on Lemtrada or Mavenclad, there's a potential of resetting the immune system in part that then yields a, a return of a system that's more hospitable to that individual. Um, and, and that's attractive because then you, you do have more of a durable effect that's positive. Now, from a peer standpoint, you know, I've flat out heard um, or have had experiences where nobody likes to bury the piece of charcoal waiting for the diamond to come out. You know, you want to see some benefit to that year, if not the year after. So, hey, I get it, you know, but uh, from where we all sit as healthcare providers, it's nice to know that, you know, an investment here uh, can lead to more positive gains in the future. There is a group of patients that no matter what we start, will have progression, poor outcome, adverse event, something, right? And need to have a switch, you know, change their therapies and so on. And there are a lot of different perspectives here, you know, as I look at my screen in terms of how to, to approach that. So um, I do want to try to, to bring other folks in. I would like to, to understand about, you know, is that switch about Convenience, adherence, compliance, is it about mechanism of action? And then how, you know, Dr. Ross, you know, you do a lot of work around patients' benefits. How is it, you know, that, that a benefit decision might impact that, that switch? Like, you know, as the patient progresses over the course of years, realizing not every patient progresses, but as, as we're following patients over the course of years, um, how do they go from drug A to B to C potentially over time? Well, and I think that used to be, I feel like that it was very physician driven. Like, I feel like you're not doing well in this medicine. Let's move you to drug A instead of drug B. But I feel like now there's a lot more conversation with each patient about here are some options for you, you know, and, and for good or for bad, because, you know, if you give a patient too many options, then they go home and they get all confused and they go on Google and they read terrible things and then they don't want to do anything. So, you know, there's there, but there is a, a conversation that really has to take place. And, and then I think the provider really has to look at what they think will be the best interest of the patient in the long run. Do we put some on Mavenclad because we have this bad feeling that they're going to be non-adherent to whatever we put them on and let's get something in them? Um, do we put them on, on, um, Ocrevus, Ocrelizumab, because we get six months of treatment and then we don't have to, to, you know, rely on their ability to administer medication at home, remember to take the medicine. And despite the best efforts of our specialty pharmacies and, and what the, the payers do with their, their clinical case managers that call patients and remind them to take medicine, it still comes down to, is the patient going to be adherent and compliant to this medication? And Again, we're talking about trying to get a patient to take a medicine that potentially has side effects that 
we're going, we're not going to tell them, you know, this medicine isn't going to make you feel good now. This is an investment, right? We're talking about what we're going to do for you and your body years from now. And that's hard to convince someone that I'm going to take this medicine every day and it's not going to make me feel better. So there really has to be a, a, a sense of patient buy-in to what you're offering them in a, in a long-term kind of view. So Dr. Lopes, you know, we've talked uh, around and at the concept of, you know, formulary management and, and limitations or potential limitations and whether or not there's a barriers to care and, and, and cost share and so on. What about for the patients who are, not in their first start, who are going to their second drug, their third drug in a, in, a, in a treatment progression or paradigm. What is an appropriate payer response to that? And, and how do you see that working in terms of, of payer management? You know, in a sense, it's less of an issue because in my experience, once you get to third line and you've already tried, you've already been intolerant, <clears throat> demonstrated that um, you know, you've progressed. Um, but by the time you get to third line treatment, pretty much payers are open to that. There's a cost of failure. There's a cost of switching. I think we all recognize, um, and especially if the patient's being uh, managed by a, uh, a neurologist, you know, it, it pretty much anything at that point gets approved, right? Including um, the higher cost IV products, Tysavery, and, and uh, as we've mentioned, um, even alentuzumab. So that's been my experience, um, Neil. It's usually when it's the, your frontline options, right? And even there, it's really about still providing choice. It may not be we cover everything. It's that's not the reality. But you'll have a preferred interferon, right? Or sometimes, you know, several products. You may you'll have a preferred S1P or several. Um, you'll have a preferred uh, dimethylfumarate or, or, or Tecfidera. So there's still options. It may in the front line, but if you've already failed two other options, uh, most payers are not prescriptive, especially in the third line of what you can get and not get, at least not yet. And so I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I'm anticipating hearing from some of the clinicians who are treating in the, uh, on the panel, that third line might be too late. Am I, I don't want to put words in people's mouth, but I've been doing this a long time <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I've learned a few things. But, but yes and no, right, Neil, because sometimes it's a game that we have to play. And, and sometimes you, you have to play that game to get to where you want to be. Unfortunately, I, I, I think there are, there are discontinuations that are genuine because of lack of response. Um, you know, within our, our large study here, more than 50% of patients actually discontinue treatment for reasons other than lack of efficacy. So there are a wealth of other reasons why people come off of therapy then, hey, my MRI got worse. All the things that NIDA encompasses, right? My disease is progressing, I'm feeling weaker, my MRI has changed, I've had a relapse. More often than not, you know, 54% of the time, it's actually the result of some other cause. So I, I think that's important. Um, you know, here in Texas, we've been stuck because under certain uh, payers, we're, we're forced to use generic glutiramer um, as, as a first line. And there's some inflexibility there. And sure, you could go to bat with, with one of the manufacturers to get 
the preferred drug covered, but sometimes that's a three month battle, if not more, it just makes it impractical. Uh, so, uh, so I, I mean, overall, it's just very complex. So think about if I have to have a kind of this Chinese uh, conversation with the patient, I'm going to start you on a medication that I don't want you to be on because I don't think it's effective, but I have to have you on this medication because your quote unquote insurance company is forcing you through that particular step. We have already discussed uh, that adherence is a very significant issue because, as Nancy Ross mentioned, uh, there is no immediate sticker, right? There is no kind of a reward. You didn't have this attack because you were compliant. I mean, so it's essentially, it's essentially that the absence of something happening is the reward in itself, but we are not mentally geared towards living of something not happening and therefore we did successful, right? I mean, it's, uh, we don't do it as a nation and uh, we don't do it as individuals in a certain way. Just going to open it up here. I'm going to, you know, maybe call on, on each of you, if you could say a, a few words about where you think the future is and uh, a little bit around the future and a little bit about the, uh, what we can do to try to stimulate the use of um, higher efficacy medications earlier in the treatment paradigm. So uh, uh, Dr. Leist. Well, I mean, stimulation of higher efficacy medication needs to, means they are available as a first-line treatment. And so from that point of view, I do think the whole discussions that we are having, as I have mentioned it perhaps two or three times already, this window of opportunity early in the disease where we can categorically change the trajectory of a patient. Uh, we're at disease that potentially could be disabling by the fact that we arrested early on may change. It may even in certain aggressive patients include therapies that we haven't talked about, for example, BMT, bone marrow transplant in certain individuals. It's also very important that we need to understand that we have to transition to a more quantitative assessment of, of, of how we assess patients Dr. Ross? Um, I would just say that I, I would appreciate if, if payers could be flexible. Um, I know that there are committees that meet and discuss formularies and what should be on the formulary and isn't. Um, it seems like every time a new medicine is released, it gets kind of shuffled to the back. And I understand that there's a lot of, of other monetary discussions that go on behind the scenes. Um, but I think payers have traditionally left their core medicines as their primary and everything else kind of gets ranked as a secondary or have you failed our, our favorite agents before we try these new cool ones. And I would like them to be able to take a look at the data and be a little bit more flexible with what they can offer patients. And then at the same time, when we're asking for a consideration for these patients, trying to wait 30, 60, 90 days for an appeal for a patient that's trying to go on Tysabri or Mavenclad or something that needs to be started 
quickly to, to not miss that window that Dr. Lysis and, and Dr. Akuta both have been talking about, then I need an answer quickly. And trying to mail an appeal, fax an appeal, fax an appeal to a fax that doesn't work. It seems like there's some barriers in there that, that payers have an opportunity to fix so that we can get a decision quickly and then we can adjust quickly. Um, our patients are left in limbo for, for way too long while this process works itself out. Dr. Lopes. Yeah, I think um, certainly an exciting time to be an MS, but at the same time, <clears throat> I think payers are reacting to the fact that uh, new products are coming to the market. I think uh, Nancy's absolutely right. Um, and as they go through our P&T process, many times they uh, are start off non-preferred. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity to redefine what excellence in MS looks like. And I think absent um, you know, the thought leaders doing that, you're seeing payers take charge, which is really unfortunate because there is a cost of failure for everyone. And so I guess my wish list is that, um, you know, we, we start to think about what is the role of these treatments? Absent biomarkers, how do we determine um, what choices we need in the frontline setting uh, to be able to satisfy patient choice and provider choice? Uh, but we're in a world where affordability is a real issue in the U.S. And I don't think the clock is going to turn back on that. So um, my plea is that we start to develop some consensus around the approach uh, that could help patients and also help providers at different levels manage to a higher level of consistency as if the patient were going to an MS uh, center of excellence. And Dr. Kuda, I'll let you take us home. Uh, so we can expect more generics for sure. Uh, I would hope that there would be a move towards how internists deal with hypertension. You know, when I was in medical school, there's a joint national committee six. Yep. They're probably on like 15 or something already. And, but it's great, right? Because they stratified it by race and ethnicity and had ideal therapies, whether you're black or African-American, if it's a calcium channel blocker, ACE inhibitor, et cetera. Mm -hmm or if you're old and you had isolated systolic hypertension of the elderly, which is pretty appropriate for 2021, there are recommendations for you. And I think that there needs to be something like that because I think that as a group of MS specialists, if we can't necessarily pinpoint ideal therapies for a given patient's journey with MS, we can all agree that there are vast differences when you look at whites versus non-whites. And I, I, although I don't think payers will get to a point and maybe genomic analysis will be cheap, um, as cheap as getting a CBC at one, you know, in, in the future, um, that, that may help with, with, you know, a given algorithm that a payer may have that they can use to then authorize the use of, of a high efficacy treatment. Now, beyond that, I think that payers will develop more algorithms that will mirror some of what our European colleagues uh, have experienced. So if someone has contrasting, contrast enhanced lesions within the spinal cord uh, or something else that that could be used as, as criteria for allowing for the use of a high efficacy agent first line. So I think that would be great. <laughs>